those of you that aren't familiar, the book of Acts is the story of how Jesus worked in the early church. It is a book that was written by a man named Luke, who wrote the gospel according to Luke, and then he wrote the book of Acts, which was his second work. So he's got a volume one and volume two in scripture. The gospel according to Luke, both in the life of Jesus in his ministry, but also the life of Jesus through his spirit. And so we come into this text, um, Acts chapter 10, 23 through 48. But before we read the text, I want to kind of place the story we'll be reading today in its context, because it is indeed a story amongst a story. So in the latter part of Acts 9, Luke transitions from the Apostle Saul, or what we call Paul, and he heads back to the Apostle Peter. And he picks up this story about Peter. And in Acts 9, the latter half of Acts 9, you see Peter doing these incredible healings, one with Aeneas, the paralyzed man, and the other, Tabitha, with a woman, Tabitha, who, who had died. And he helped participate in this resurrection in the city of Joppa. Now, while Peter was in Joppa, he was staying at the house of a man named Simon, who was a tanner by the sea. And on top of the house of Simon, he had this vision. This is the beginning of Acts chapter 10. And the vision was from God, and it regarded clean and unclean foods. And it was very strange to Peter. He really didn't know what was going on. And, and in fact, he didn't want to eat the very foods that, that this vision portrayed. But as that vision was coming to the end, God said to Peter, Hey, there's three men downstairs. I want you to go with them. And he's like, what? And that's where we come to in the story today. The men have knocked at the door of Simon the Tanner in the city of Joppa. And they said, hey, we want you to come with us. And so we come to verse 23, and that's where we'll pick up the story. The next day, Peter rose and went away with them, the men that had come from Capernaum. And some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day, they entered Caesarea, not Capernaum, Caesarea, some 40 miles north of Joppa. And Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up. I too am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So now Peter understands exactly what this vision that he had on the rooftop of Simon the Tanner's house. There's no more clean or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. But I asked, why have you sent for me? And Cornelius said, four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour. And behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who's called Peter. He's lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once, and you have been kind enough to come. Now therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he has sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, the Lord, he is Lord of all. 
You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to retain, remain for some days. One of the best lessons, educational lessons that I've ever received in school, any kind of school, is called the 3 a.m. test. The 3 a.m. test is a tool that helps prepare for you to make a presentation. And it goes something like this. If you were to be awakened at 3 a.m. in the morning... Would you be able to communicate to the person who has awakened you succinctly and clearly the presentation that you're about to make? If you can, hey, the presentation's ready to go. But if you can't, there's more work to do. Now, each week that I prepare a lesson, I actually apply this 3 a.m. test every single week. Can I, with clarity and with you know, conciseness, Communicate what I'm trying to communicate to you today. It's a helpful lesson. And it's helped me in my preaching. And no, I am not asking you to call me on Sunday mornings at 3 a.m. to ask me what's going on in the sermon. Hey, there's a couple Sundays that, hey, you know this. The 3 a.m. test, oh, it doesn't pass. <laughs> okay? You know this. Thank you. But the 3 a.m. test is a great litmus test for what to know, what I need to communicate to you. So let me ask you this question, church. If I were to wake you at 3 a.m. and ask you, what is Christianity about? Would you be able to answer with clarity and conciseness what it is about? What is Christianity about? How would you respond? What's the answer that you would give? Now, you might be sitting there thinking, I'm not a Christian. And I am talking to you, too. I'm talking to Christians and to non-Christians. Here's why. This is a vitally important question for all. If you're a non-Christian, how can you, can you say with great certainty and affinity, and, and with, not with ignorance, why you don't believe in Christianity? I mean, you, you've got to be able to at least give a, 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 an answer to that question. And it might expose your ignorance, to which I would say you need to be informed. But for the Christian, if you're not able to answer concisely and succinctly what Christianity is about, how then can you follow the Christian faith? It's important for the Christian and the non-Christian alike. Can you pass 
this 3 a.m. test. Christianity can be complex. I know that. And it's easy to lose the forest amongst the trees. But I believe we can know Christianity in such a way that if we were awakened at 3 a.m., we could give a simple and concise answer to the question, what is Christianity about? Or what ultimately is Christianity? Now, in Acts 10, here's where I'm going with this. In Acts 10, I think we find a a really good uh, story to help us define what Christianity is ultimately about. In this story, Peter, who's this disciple of Jesus, he's like the main man, interacts with the centurion named Cornelius. He's a Gentile, and he's ignorant of what Christianity is all about. But he had this vision, and he's like, I gotta know what it's all about. And in the vision, God sent his servants to Peter. And Peter comes to him, and he tells Cornelius all that Christianity is about. Peter tells Cornelius about the God of the Christian faith. And in the process of telling him about the God of the Christian faith, he reveals three of the most vital pillars of the Christian faith. Not the whole thing. Not the whole thing of Christianity. But he provides three very important pillars to the Christian faith. And it is these pillars that I want to present to you as the cheat sheet to the 3 a.m. test. What is Christianity about? There's three pillars. And the first pillar that we're going to see in this text is that God is real. God is real. You want to pass the test? You got to understand that Christianity says God is real. This is a simple truth. But it's important that we recognize this this truth is revealed in this text. And let me show you what I mean. Recall, Peter's on the top of a roof praying to God and he has this vision And this vision, God is communicating to eat foods that were to him unclean. And during this vision, three men randomly show up to his door, and the voice of God says, listen to them and go with them. They're servants of a Roman centurion named Cornelius, and they've been summoned themselves to bring Peter back to their their master, or the one that they serve, which is Cornelius. I mean, Peter's head had to be spinning. What is going on? And of course, as he arrives at Cornelius' house, he asks him that very question. Yo, man, what is going on? I have no clue. But look at what Cornelius says to him. Cornelius says, four days ago about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour. And behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing. And he said, Cornelius, your prayers have been heard and your alms have been remembered. And I want you to go to Joppa. And ask, a son, man, ask for Simon, who's called Peter. He's lodging in a house of, named, of a guy named Simon, who's a tanner by the sea. So I sent you for it for you at once. So I want you to see this. There's two men in this story that are 38 miles apart, with no connection whatsoever to each other. One's a Jew. The other's a Roman Gentile centurion. But at the similar period of time, they experience these visions of God. And on top of that, I think what's most profound about these visions is the specificity of those visions. For Peter, there were three men at the door, and God says, go listen to them. But for the Roman centurion, it was like the address of the very man that he needed to see. I mean, they don't have addresses the way they do, but it was a very specific vision. 
Go to a man named Simon, who's also called Peter. He's staying at Simon the Tanner's house, who's by the sea. It's like, go to 1518 Kavanaugh Street, and you're going to find the answer. And lo and behold, boom! They find Simon, who's also called Peter. It's profound. What's going on with these visions? How can this happen? What is taking place? I mean, did Peter and Cornelius get into some foods that were, let's just let's say, transformative? I don't think so. No, I'll tell you what's happening. The God who is and the God who always has been was at work in this story. What was taking place is the reality of God was being exposed to both of these men. In this story, we see a simple explanation, the pillar of Christianity, and that is this truth. God is real. You cannot explain away some of these profound visions by some transformative food because of the specificity of these two visions. How in the world could this happen? It's because God is real, and he works and he moves in our world. Now, church... I realize that the majority, the vast majority of you already believe in this. This is not breaking news to you. Yo, I already believe in God. And it's also true of our culture. <laughs> According to a Gallup poll earlier this year, 81% of Americans still believe in the existence of God. I mean, this is true that it is a pillar of the Christian faith. Yet, while most of us in here believe in the reality of God, Here's the thing that I think I want to press as a pastor into your life. You might believe in the reality that God is alive. And you might give mental assent. But do you acknowledge that God is with you or around you and lives and moves and has his being. And he works currently in our midst. I would argue that while most people believe in God, most people, maybe not you, live as practical atheists. Yeah, you give mental assent to the reality of God, but the way you live your life tells otherwise. Life is about you. You fail to acknowledge God in your everyday life. You move and have your being in yourself. Our lives consist of centering on the Holy Trinity of me, myself, and I. Yes, we might give intellectual assent to the reality of God, but we live as practical atheists. Is this you? Do you move and have your being? You live in the reality that God is real. Oh, that you would not. Episodes like this, where these strange things, these spiritual things, sober our atheistic tendencies, even if we have given intellectual assent to the reality of God. This story is a beautiful reminder to us that God is not this mythical character that's just been made up for the appeasement of our conscience or to deal with the, 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 you know, the, the desire to think that we're, there's something bigger than ourselves. No. It's the basic premise that God indeed is real. And since he is real, then we have to, as a people, acknowledge that God is God and we are not. That he's the creator and we are the created. And we have to give not only intellectual assent to that, but applicable sense to that in all aspects of life. So that when we take in a sense of sunset, we marvel at the God who could fashion such a beautiful scenery. That when we hold a baby staring at all the miracle of life, we go, what a God who created such a thing. 
Oh, that we would live and move and have our being in the reality that God does indeed exist. This is a pillar of Christianity. You want to pass the test, the 3 a.m. test? God is real. This is perhaps a simple pillar, but it is a vital pillar to recognize that indeed God is real. But there's a second pillar that I want you to realize in this 3 a.m. test that I want you to pass. And that is probably, perhaps, it certainly is more important than God is real. And that is this, that God is Savior. That God is not only real, but God is Savior. This is ultimately why Peter is summoned to the house of Cornelius. God wants Peter to communicate the reality of God's salvation to all people. Now, his explanation of how God is Savior is short by our standards. Many of you are wishing, why can't you preach a sermon that short? I don't know. But although it's short, I want you to see this. There's two important realities I want you to see in this short explanation that Peter gives to Cornelius about how God is Savior. There is more details about Jesus' life and ministry in this short message that Peter gives to Cornelius than any other speech in the book of Acts. More details in this short about who Jesus is and his ministry than any other story in the book of Acts that's given. Secondly, I want you to see this. The story that Peter tells Cornelius mirrors the very ministry, the pattern of ministry that Luke wrote about in Jesus in his first volume. It's literally almost category by category of how Jesus' ministry went about. So there's this profound reality, this summary of all that Jesus did and his salvation that he's bringing to all people. And that salvation is summarized in this. God is Savior. Now, I want you to see the the three different movements of God's salvation. I want you to see this. Because if we're going to understand if God is our Savior, I want you to see the three different realities of Peter's little message. And the first, perhaps most important reality of God as our Savior is this. That God saves through Jesus. That when we say God is Savior, we're saying that God saves through Jesus. Now listen to how Peter begins his speech to Cornelius and to those that are gathered. He says, as for the word that God sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ. Now I want you to know that good news there is also euangelion, which is a Greek word which we get gospel. So when Luke wrote his gospel and the people were translating it, they were saying the euangelion according to Luke. The gospel according to Luke. So as for the word that God sent to Israel, preaching the gospel of peace through Jesus Christ, he's Lord of all, you yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed. So here's what I want you to see. Peter wants you and I and his audience at this time to see that Jesus is the very fulfillment of the word of God that had been sent to Israel. I'll say this a little bit differently. Peter is saying the whole Old Testament Take your Bible. The Old Testament, the very Word of God, it's all about Jesus. That God is saving through Jesus. That the covenants that were established with Abraham, Moses, David, and the prophets, it's all about Jesus. Jesus is the fulfillment of the peace that is promised through the Old Testament. He is the gospel. He's the good news. And of course, this promise, and these promises are fulfilled in the life of Jesus' ministry throughout Judea. So this is historical reality. It's not just like, oh yeah, it happened. No, Peter takes him to the historical realities. The ministry that began after the baptism that John proclaimed, which wasn't just any baptism. 
He says it was a baptism by which you were anointed by the Holy Spirit and had power. And what Peter is saying is this. Jesus is Lord. He is God himself. God is Savior through the person of Jesus. Jesus wasn't just any old Joe Schmo. He's a big deal. He's the fulfillment of all the scriptures. He is God. And he is the very way that God saves. If you want to know the pillar of Christianity is that God is Savior, but he's Savior through the person of Jesus who himself is God. It starts here. God's salvation starts in Jesus. But what does Jesus save us from? What is the description of the problem that we have? And this is also answered in Peter's speech. Let's go back to Peter's sermon and see where he goes after he establishes that Jesus is the very means by which God saves. Where does he go? He goes here. He tells them that Jesus has saved us from the devil. So the first thing we see is that God saves through Jesus and that Jesus saves us from the devil. Look what he says. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by who? The devil. For God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. I want you to see this. It's really simple. Jesus defeats the devil. His evil, his manipulations, his destruction, he defeats it. And Peter is telling Cornelius, we are witnesses of this reality. I love the story of the Gerasene demoniac from Mark 5. It's a story in which Jesus exercised the demons from this man who had been living with hundreds of demons. And the bondage was so great that the man was confined to live in the cemetery. It's because they tried to chain this man up. The people in the city, they couldn't control him. They tried to chain him up, but he would just break the chain. He had this great power. No one would go near him. But then Jesus, all of a sudden, shows up on the shores of this city, and the demons are like crumbling at his his feet. And they're so afraid of Jesus, they just say, please, don't get rid of us. Send us into the pigs. They're cowering at Jesus' feet. And Jesus says, go to the pigs. And they they leave the man, go into the pigs, run into the sea. It's one of the most powerful examples of Jesus' power. His power over the devil. Now this is hard for us to fathom. Because we don't see the demonic all the time, if at all. And yet the Bible communicates to us the reality of demonic forces, but the power of Jesus over those demonic forces. Everywhere he went, he went with power, overthrowing the work of demonic forces. Jesus saves us from the devil. It's one of the realities of our salvation. I don't know if you ever watch scary movies. I can't stand them. But in some of the scary movies that I watched, the ones that really freak me out are the ones with demons. And, and I've watched some of these before. And you want to know what? <laughs> when I get done watching those crazy movies, and I don't recommend them, I end up in my room just praying, Lord Jesus, help me. Lord, help me. And he does. He's greater than the evil forces around us. Whether you acknowledge the reality of them in in, in grotesque forms or whatever, he's still greater than them. He saves us from the devil. 
Paul writes of Christ as he's fathoming this. He says, Jesus disarmed the powers and authorities, making a public spectacle of them. He makes them look ridiculous. Oh, that we would not fear because Jesus has saved us from the devil. He can save you, my friends, from the manipulative and destructive evil forces that exist in our world. Who else can save you from this? But Jesus, the one who has the power over them. You see, Jesus saves us from the devil. So that's the first thing that Jesus saves us from. And the second thing I want you to see that, that, that Peter mentions to Cornelius and to us is that not only does Jesus save us from the devil, he saves us from our sin. This is how he continues his speech to Cornelius. He says, They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sin through his name. We have to wrap our minds around this, and we don't. Our society is a society that wants to blame. And don't think that you are devoid of blaming your faults on other people. We make it maybe, oh, it's the devil's fault. He made me do it. No, you did it. We don't like to take responsibility for our sin, for doing that, which God, or doing, going against what God has set up. Sin is breaking the laws of God or, or wanting to be, you know, not conform to it. Like, I don't want God's law. But here's the reality. that God's law is set up and we break it each and every day. And do you know the consequences of our sin? It is death. Each of us, according to the scriptures, are going to have to go before God and we have to to deal with our sin before a holy God. And the question for you and for me is, how do we deal with our sin, our rebelliousness, our our law-breaking before a holy God? How? There's simply two ways. You can pay for it yourself. Or you can pay pay for it through the blood of Christ. And this is what Peter is telling Cornelius and us. There is a way... For you to receive the forgiveness of sins. And it's by looking at the one who went to the cross. And paid the penalty of sin in your place. That's ultimately what the cross is. It's Jesus going to the place that you and I deserved. And he goes there in our place. The man who knew no sin. Who never broke the law. Went to the cross himself. In the place of sinners, that he might pay the penalty for sinners, that in his resurrection and then his ascension at the right hand of God, where he will be the judge of the living and the dead, he can grant forgiveness of sins to those who look to the cross as the payment for their sins. This is what Peter is telling Cornelius and to us. You want to know what Christianity is about? It's about how God saves through Jesus. It's how Jesus saves us 
from Satan and his ways and his manipulations and his evil forces. But it's how Jesus saves us from sin through his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension. Don't you see the workings of Christianity, the basics of Christianity being worked out right here? God is our Savior. Do you want to be saved from Satan and your sin? Look to Jesus. He is the author, the one who writes it, and the one who fulfills our salvation. Do you want to be saved from Satan? Do you want to be saved from your sin? Look to Jesus. This is what Peter's saying. Not to the works that you've done, not to what you haven't done, but to Jesus. Friends, this is simple. This is the Christian faith. This is our hope. It's Christianity 101. Jesus is our Savior. Our text has revealed two important pillars of the Christian faith, that God is real and God is Savior. But it also provides one final pillar, and it's this. God is present. God is present. You know, while Peter is giving this explanation, a basic introduction to these people of how God is Savior and the ways that he saves, look at what happens. There was this... The Holy Spirit descends on these Gentiles. The Spirit of God is in their midst. And the people who've come with Peter from Joppa, the disciples, look at their response. Their jaws are on the floor. Are you kidding me? God is present with these Gentiles? What? And look at what these Gentiles are doing. They're speaking in tongues. And they're extolling God. Now Peter immediately says, we need to baptize them. The presence of the Holy Spirit is with them. Let us make sure that they belong to the people of God. And they do this. But what does this communicate more than anything, especially in regards to Christianity? It's this reality. God is present with those who believe. God is not some transcendent God who is, who is off in the sky that we cannot know. God is right here with us. And his presence with us has significant effect on us. The primary one that I think for us today that pertains to us is the extolling of God. Now I want to speak to the speaking in tongues for a very brief moment here. And mind you, this is my interpretation. This is, this is if you want to know, he's rabbit trailing. Yes, I'm rabbit trailing. But I want to inform you what this speaking in tongues means and where it is. And how it fits into the presence of God in their midst. So we're, we're over here for a second, okay? What does the speaking in tongues mean? What I want you to see first and foremost is this is the first time that the Holy Spirit comes to the Gentiles. In all of Scripture, that the Holy Spirit descends on him, on them. Now when this happens, something mysterious and magical happens and they speak in tongues. What's going on? And the clue is actually all the way back in Acts chapter 2. When the Holy Spirit descends upon the Jews. And the exact same thing happens for the Jews. They speak in tongues. So what is happening? Here's what it is. At least in my view. I think it's the reverse of the Tower of Babel. 
If you go back to Genesis 11, the people are trying to build a temple to God. They're saying, let us attain to God. And God goes, you cannot come near me. I am too holy. You and your own power cannot do this. And because you think you're so great and mighty that you can somehow attain to me, I'm going to confuse you. And you're going to be in speaking in tongues that no one can understand. And there's going to be a limit to your power and your ability to communicate with all these different people. Because you're not God. But here, what we see, when the Spirit descends on His people, the exact opposite happens. God descends toward them, and then they can speak in all the tongues. And so all the communication that, that was limited to them is now possible. The tongues, the different languages that they're speaking. And so now there's not this restriction. The Spirit is present, and the communication via God can take place. So that's what's taking place. And I think it's an extraordinary event that is limited to this time period, to the giving of the Holy Spirit to the Gentiles. That's the speaking of tongues. Now, do I think that God can still work? I do think God can still work in tongues. I've heard stories and I've shared stories. But I think that God can use tongues in apostolic settings where the gospel has not yet gone forth and the Holy Spirit has not yet descended. So places that have not heard it, I do think the Spirit can work in those ways, in powerful ways, but it's extraordinary. It's not ordinary. But you know what is ordinary? We're done with the rabbit trail. You know what is ordinary for the people of God who experience the presence of God? The extolling of God. This text reminds us that God is present with us right now through His Spirit. And what is the fruit of the presence of God in our life? Because you might be sitting there going, do I, am I near God? Does the Spirit dwell with me? And all I want to tell you is, do you extol God? Not all the time, because we sin. But does your heart bubble up with the love of God? Does it, is it overwhelmed with, you know, with praise as you consider what God has done and who He's revealed Himself? If your heart extols God and praises Him, the presence of God is with you, and you can find the assurance of His nearness. If your heart moves and bubbles up with praise, he is near. So Christian, and I speak this to you, if your heart bubbles up with praise, find the assurance of God's presence in your life. Because where God is, all the praises come from his people. If the heart does not bubble up, though, my friends, if you're going... Actually, I've kind of just been kind of working this whole system and just kind of going through the motions. I want to encourage you to go back to Peter's sermon or his little talk and to consider the salvation of God. For there is where your heart will be moved by who our God is and by what he's done. It's 3 a.m. You're in the midst of your sleep and I call you. Why are you calling me, Dan? What is this about? Oh, you know what it's about. <laughs> what is Christianity about? Ugh. Ugh. God is real. God is Savior. God is present. That's right. Friends, may you know that. And may you know that intimately. Let's pray. We give thanks to you, O oh God, for your word. For even in this story, a story that many of us have heard over and over and over again, 
we can see it with the newness and the freshness as if we were seeing it for the first time. Yes, Lord, you are worthy to be praised for you, you have granted to us a salvation that we have not deserved, but it is a salvation that we received. Oh, that our hearts would receive this afresh today and we would give you praise. Praise for the salvation that you've worked for us over Satan and his evil forces and the salvation that you've granted to us over sin. 